Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, the Chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. With me today is Dr. Bill Maurice, the Chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic and the President of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. This is our weekly discussion with Dr. Maurice in which we learn about updates in the field of laboratory medicine and pathology. Good morning, Bill, and a happy belated Father's Day. Oh, thank you. Yes, and happy Juneteenth as well to you. Yes, absolutely. Did you have a nice Father's Day weekend? Well, yeah, I did, actually. I was able to see all three adult kids, actually, so that was fun and got to And Gretzky, too, right? What's that? And Gretzky. And Gretzky, yes. And Gretzky. <laughs> Every day is Father's Day with Gretzky around, that's for sure. And then and it was interesting because we went from 60 degree weather on Saturday up north to 90 degree weather on Sunday. So yeah, it's a little crazy. It's going to be yeah. warm this week for sure. And lots of other topics to talk about besides just Father's Day, Juneteenth. We obviously have a lot of other things going on. You just came back from Washington and I think you have some updates for us on PAMA and Valid. And then of course, there's continuing to be some new updates on what's going on with monkeypox and COVID. Where do you yeah. want to start? We can end on DC stuff, maybe start with, with some of the things that are happening, particularly with monkeypox. Both yeah. are really quite interesting what we're seeing. So well, yeah, let's talk about monkeypox because we've certainly covered that a few times now on this show. It continues to unfold because we obviously had early information based on a few cases. We now have over a hundred cases in the US. There's over 2,500 cases confirmed worldwide in 37 countries. So clearly we're learning a lot more about monkeypox. So first of all, probably helps to start by saying it's still rare, even though it's thousands of cases now, that's still pretty rare given the world's population. Um, I think so my, my understanding though, it's a bigger outbreak than we typically see with monkeypox, isn't it? It's usually more in the hundreds, not thousands. Yeah, it is unusual. So once we get past just general reassurances that you know the general public shouldn't panic, I still think it's really important for us to talk about because this is unusual. It's unusual to see this spreading from person to person outside of the endemic areas, which is West and Central Africa. It looks like most cases where we actually have information are coming from patients who have sexual contact with men, so men that have sex with men, but we clearly know that it spreads in other means as well. And the other big thing I'll point out is that it looks like the lesions aren't necessarily the classic lesions that we think of with monkeypox. So usually there's this whole prodrome. It starts with fever, fatigue, you get swollen lymph nodes, then you get a rash. And usually the rash has is multiple different lesions. It usually starts on the face, it spreads to other parts of the body. And that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing patients that might not have a fever at all, might not have swollen lymph nodes, might just have the rash, and the rash isn't a lot of lesions. It might just be a few lesions, and it tends to be concentrated in the perianal and genital regions rather than starting on the face and the trunk. So that's very unusual. And then the last thing that we're learning is that usually the lesions are all at the same stage. They start as these little red bumps, they swell up, they eventually become vesicles, and then they become pustules, then they crest over, the crest falls off, and that's the full lesion. And they're usually all at the same stage. 
But what we're finding out is that you can actually have lesions at different stages. And so it looks more like varicella zoster virus, which causes chicken pox and herpes zoster. So I think people need to know that the lesions may not be classic and can look like other things like syphilis uh, yeah. or herpes simplex virus. Yeah, no, I think that that's right. So one of the sets of conversations I was in last week was with Dr. Punjabi, who is the head of the COVID pandemic White House Task Force, which is now getting to be more of an infectious disease preparedness and response task force. And that is, he's actually a general internist by training. And that is, his concern is that it is mimicking other sexually transmitted infections. And therefore, many cases might be missed, either because the patients themselves don't go in for diagnosis, or even if they do, that the physicians don't, and providers that see them don't think of it, because it's not typical, and it's not in the differential diagnosis of uh, anogenital rashes, because it's not a typical presentation for the illness. So I think that's why when people are kind of, the question, well, there's only a few thousand cases, what people aren't getting that sick, why is there that much concern? Well, I think the concern is that if we don't identify patients and treat them and contact trace, that this couldn't become endemic in other parts of the world, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere here. Yeah, I think that's a real risk, Bill. There's definitely some people speculating that this could become endemic. It could be uh, something that we consider to be a sexually transmitted disease, like something such as herpes simplex virus. It's not always sexually transmitted, but it certainly has a sexual transmission component. And this could become something like that. So testing, as we mentioned before, is going to be really important to identify cases. And then keeping in mind it can appear atypical. So then putting that history, that epidemiologic picture together, that's going to be really important. The other thing that's really interesting about this is it's sort of like a deja vu all over again, you know, to quote, like I think, Yogi Berra. But because the conversations we're having with the White House, with the CDC and FDA representation, talking about the need for testing, because again, even if a disease is uncommon, if it's in the differential diagnosis, which is relatively common, I think there's about 60,000 sexually transmitted infections diagnosed per week or something, you would know that number better than I do, that we need to have a lot more testing out there. And maybe the public health labs, they have a lot of capacity, but they're also a lot of places not in the routine of patient care. Also, one of the areas that we knew pre-pandemic, interestingly, that had a lot of like phone-based apps and self-testing apps were in the area of sexually transmitted infections because a lot of patients, for obvious reasons, are reticent to go seek care. So it's really causing the same set of conversations about what's the role of the public health labs? Should some private labs be helping to support that? Should there be public-private partnership? Should FDA be looking at fast-tracking some things like self-collection? There's all these things are out there again. So it's intriguing um, and it's interesting. And I think it's also honestly reflective We've talked about this over the last couple of years about how things could change. I think it's human nature that as we see the pandemic somewhat on the wane, but maybe not as much as we would like, that we kind of want to put those all those conversations kind of on the back burner just because we all have COVID fatigue. But the reality yes. is that we can't. And, and that part of that is, uh, as Dr. Punjabi said, there's many that are thinking we're entering the age of pandemics, mm-hmm. that we're going to be dealing with more of this. And even in the near term for the next year or two, we might see unusual patterns of transmission of viral illnesses just because of all the isolation and all the things that we did in response to trying to contain COVID. So it's it's an interesting time, just thinking in the broader perspective of testing and making it available and what sort of policy changes are needed to make it available. 
Yeah, those are all excellent points. It really is interesting time with unusual, atypical presentations we may be seeing, the age of outbreaks. I don't want to say pandemics. Hopefully we won't have more of those anytime soon, but yeah, just no outbreaks, maybe more epidemics. Things can become endemic. And of course, we're even seeing diseases that have been around for ages now making comebacks. And some of those are sexually transmitted pathogens. So we're seeing gonorrhea going up, cases going up, syphilis. That's a, you know, centuries old disease. It's been around co-evolving with humans for such a long time. And now cases of that are going up again. So it is a little concerning. We'll obviously have to keep an eye on where this goes. There's ways to protect against sexually transmitted pathogens. But since we're seeing cases going up across the nation, you worry that people aren't necessarily choosing to take those precautions. And so anything that's transmitted sexually has that ability to go up as well. Yeah, all these other aftershocks, if you will, that we, I guess none of us really, but we're so, and we're still trying to deal with COVID as well. And the transmission that we're seeing with the, with the Omicron subvariants and, and immune evasion, that at least there was good news on the vaccine front, which we discussed yeah. last week, I think with the bivalent vaccines. But the other thing that I mentioned, it was a very busy time in, in D.C. last week. I was out there participating on the Food and Drug Law Institute on a panel discussion of ballot. It turns out that was on a Wednesday, and the ballot act actually was released from the Senate Help Committee on that Tuesday when I got there. So the bill is now written released from, from subcommittee, which means it can be voted on by the whole Senate. And then if it passes the Senate, of course, it would have to go to the House for to be considered. The House apparently passed its own bill on FDA funding, which didn't include anything about testing and some of the other stuff that's in Fedazla, the bigger FDA bill. But the real question around ballot, there's all, a lot of interesting questions around FDA spurred a lot actually by the, the baby food shortage and how that transpired and were there missteps. But just in specific to ballot, the academic medical centers as the bill, after the bill was released, before it went to, came out from markup from the Senate Health Committee, there was a lot of concerns voiced from academic medical centers. And so it'll be interesting to see now as the bill gets introduced to, to the House and there, you know, there's a whole process around conferencing between the House and the Senate that they around this. It's still kind of uncertain if this is really going to pass. It certainly has cleared one hurdle at least. Yeah, this is the time and we'll be keeping a close eye on it for sure because something has a very high likelihood of happening this summer and fall. Yeah, well, it was, and when I was out there, the Food and Drug Law Institute is a very FDA-centric, as you might imagine, meeting. And it is, I was shared a couple of times that this is a top priority for FDA, okay. is gaining clarity on its role in the regulation, clinical laboratory testing. And so, no, I don't think this is going to die, even if valid doesn't pass. And so that's one of the, as much as it might be difficult to live with valid, there's elements of it that would be tough. It might be even more difficult to deal with uncertainty and, and then FDA, because again, people have to remember that the FDA's position is they don't need this legislation to have the authority to regulate clinical laboratory developed tests, right. but they've enforced regulatory discretion. So, right, they feel they already have that authority. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so the only framework to do it then would be as a device, which is, would be pretty onerous. So anyways, that's that. So the other thing we've talked about in the past, PAMA, which is again, the CMS fee schedule for clinical tests. So what we get paid for the testing that we do, there's probably going to be a bill introduced sometime in the next week or two for a permanent fix to PAMA. If you recall, we've had a couple of delays. There were, there, excuse me, there were cuts that were scheduled to be made uh, with, that were 
right actually in 2020 that we got delayed for 2020 and 2021, 2022 here. I guess the first cuts for 2021, the 2022 cuts, both have been delayed as has the data reporting for that. But that also has to have a permanent fix because if they don't do something in Congress, then that all that stuff would just be happening in 2023. So yeah. lots happening at the federal level that really are impactful for clinical labs and all of us. A lot of implications for the laboratory, but lots of things for us to keep talking about. And thanks for the updates on what's going on in Washington. Those are always fascinating. Yeah, it really is interesting to see testing, of course, in the early days of COVID was the front and center uh, mm-hmm. all the time. You and I know that. Well, if you look back at our Outlook calendars, all the media requests and things that came yeah. through. But now it's still, there's still this whole element of societal monkeypox is kind of keeping the societal aspects of clinical testing on the front burner. And then we have all the things with, with the regulatory side with Valid and PAMA. So it's going to be an interesting year, especially after we get through the elections, because that's when a lot of the stuff will really move in the fall. We'll have to really keep our early ground. Well, I'll put in one last plug to think about. And now that it's summer, everyone's going outdoors, probably to not think about COVID. And so I'll just say, don't forget your tick repellent and your mosquito repellent. Yes, the bugs are horrible. The mosquitoes, because the water level is, and, and thankfully we were in drought. Now we're kind of in the, near flood stage in the Northern hemisphere here. And so the bugs are out and Gretzky, the pup, he did have a tick. So yeah. out. Um, so they're out there. I thought of you when he was out, oh. out running through the long grass. I said, don't do that. And then I know. <laughs> You want them to have fun. You want all of us to have fun. But yeah, take precautions. Check your loved ones and your pets for ticks. Good for you that you found it and pulled it off. And, and he'll be good, I'm sure. So Yeah, he wasn't real happy about it, but yes. Oh. All right. All right, Belle. Well, it was great talking to you as always. And I'll, I'll talk to you next week about whatever else is going on in this world of ours. That sounds great. I look forward to it as always. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.